Sego. I'm John Kane and this is Let's Talk Native. This week I want to share a conversation I recently had with a person I've come to know through my involvement in the mascot battle at my old high school in Cambridge, New York. But before we get into that, I need to give you some updates on the mascot battle in Cambridge. Recently, on episode 546 of this show, I covered the week leading up to the school board's successful passing of a resolution to retire their offensive race-based mascot. That episode was called That One Week in Cambridge. And in it, we featured a conversation with a local Cambridge, New York activist and talked about the outside pressures applied on the school board to finally make the right decision. Well, unfortunately, one week after the Cambridge Central School Board resolution was to become effective, new members were sworn in that shifted the balance of the school board in favor of keeping their offensive mascot, and they immediately rescinded the resolution of the previous board and passed a new resolution to keep their offensive name and merely review the offensive mascot and logo. Although this new school board has decided to take a closer look at the mascot, make no mistake about it, they are determined to keep the offensive name and some form of native imagery moving forward. As I pushed for my old high school to drop its native mascot, myself and others provided the school board with a great deal of information that should have been enough to leave no doubt about the inappropriateness of native mascots. Included in that information were resolutions, official statements, and press releases from native organizations, nations, and reports from professional organizations on the psychological damage that native mascots inflict not only on native people, but on other people of color as well. The folks in Cambridge, in spite of calling themselves Indians for 80 years, have no knowledge of native history beyond some sketchy local folklore and the general acknowledgement that all lands claimed by towns, states, and the U.S. in general were, of course, native lands first. One of the rumors now spreading through the small community is that the newly sworn in school board members will push to put a stronger emphasis on what some residents believe to be Mohican history for their new mascot. Some of this sketchy and poorly researched local lore involves a story that promotes the idea of a sacred Mohican owl as a supposedly significant cultural or even spiritual image representing the native peoples originally from the land that Cambridge now occupies. To address claims by the small community of white people that the area is so rich with native history and that this quote-unquote respect for that history is part of the justification for their continued use of an offensive school mascot, I tried to put an emphasis on statements from the actual native people who were indeed indigenous to that region. As you all know, I'm Mohawk, or Gunyagahaga. This region was an area that my ancestors once called home. But with a history that goes much further back than any settler can seem to comprehend, the area would see Mohican, Huron, and several other native peoples living in the area at various times through our history. But it's pretty much acknowledged that the area was predominantly occupied by Mohawks and Mohicans. So I and others made sure we had statements or resolutions from Mohawks, the Haudenosaunee, and the Mohicans. This is where I first learned of and was introduced to Heather Briegel. Heather is a cultural affairs director for the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohican Nation. She is Oneida and Mohican and lives and works on the territory of the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohican Nation in what is now known as Wisconsin. 
Heather provided both the official Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation resolution condemning any and all use of native mascots, as well as a specific statement to the Cambridge School Board on the matter, making the Mohican stance clear. No more native mascots. With that, let me introduce Heather Briegel. I want to start our conversation by first mentioning that North Haven, Connecticut, last night voted unanimously to retire their Indians mascot and logo. I got a, um, a text message from one of the residents there who thanked me for my work because they've been watching what's been happening in Cambridge. And I, you know, I've got a hashtag. I say, don't be like Cambridge. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because they, they are, they are actually standing as the example of what not to be. I mean, you have a school that literally retired the mascot and, and a week after that came into effect, they, they rescinded that, that order and, and, (laughs) <laughs> and have every intention to bring it back. There's such an effort there in Cambridge to come up with some reason to keep their name the Indians. They are really trying to do this, you know, th- this almost frantic attempt to come up with Native history that they are completely ob- oblivious to. So mm-hmm. um, there is, you know, they really don't know who the Native people were that were indigenous to that area. Um, and as you and I discussed, that has changed over time. It was it was Mohican right. territory. It was Mohawk territory. It was Huron territory. But what's happening now? The resolution that Cambridge passed was that they would keep the name, but they would do they would form a committee and they would look into the appropriateness of the logo that they currently have, which is like clip art. It's the same logo that you know twenty or thirty other schools up and down the East coast of used. They just put a little color. Yeah. Actually, and the crazy part with Cambridge's logo is that it's white faced. It's a white logo with one orange fe- um, feather. So they're going to de- determine the appropriateness of this. And one of the uh, threads that is being pulled real hard in Cambridge is there's a story that somebody has recounted and I don't even know where it comes from, but, um, that there was once a chief in that area who they a Mohican chief, Mohican chief that was um, that was called Chief Owl. I mean, there's there's a, a river there called the Owl Kill, uh, which is you know the kill is part of a Dutch Dutch language. Uh, yeah. River. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and the area does have a relatively healthy population of owls in the area. But what some of these folks are saying that we're going to call ourselves the Indians, but we're going to use the sacred Mohican owl as our logo and our and our mascot. The obvious question is, why not call yourself owls, right? I mean, right, like just be an owl. Like I don't. Yeah, just be the Cambridge owl. Am I missing something? (laughs) But see, this is an attempt, and and now and 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 again, I. I'm glad I'm talking to you because they're trying to incorporate this as some sacred um, creature, some you know, part of creation that was um, that has a unique and meaningful and spiritual um, presence with the Mohican. So they're they're trying to manipulate and and reassert your culture with this owl image. And I mean, it, it's. Again, when we talk about erasure, these guys are trying to create a narrative that you as the culture, cultural affairs director, you can't even substantiate the story that they're trying to tell. Right. And not to mention if they're portraying it as some sacred spiritual ceremonial thing that makes 
it even worse. More inappropriate, exactly. It makes it completely inappropriate because it's, it's, you don't do that. I mean, as indigenous people, we understand ceremony. We understand the sacredness of certain objects. We don't use them as mascots or advertising or anything like that. So that, that idea, that concept that they're trying to work with, that they're just making up, just makes you sound even more awful. Whatever the relationship is that we have with various uh, animals that were indigenous to the area that we live, then look, we, we do use um, animals as, as part of our stories, our storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, our clan, yep. our clans are oftentimes um, fashioned in, in the image of, of an animal uh, of some sort. I mean, as a, as a Mohawk, we have we have bear, wolf and turtle. Uh, we we do use other animals like the eagle as a part of our story with the with the f- formation of the Haudenosaunee and the 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 Goa, the our great law of peace. And, you know, we, we talk about oh. eagle sitting on top uh, to be vigilant and every, uh, you know, ever, um, you know, viewing any calamity or danger that could come our way. So we, we have you know, we have these images. But the idea of using an eagle or an owl or or an animal is 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 one thing. But to to make it into a native thing that they know nothing about is problematic. And and that's again white people grabbing onto something that they know very little about and trying to make something more significant into it. And um you know and, and it's frustrating. And and you're right. It is it's degrading because it doesn't take into consideration. Nobody contacted any um, historian that has any native background to to talk about this. I mean, you know, Bill Starna's book, um, which is you know, which I'm, I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with, that talked about mm-hmm. um, from homelands to newlands, uh, the the story of the of, of the Mohicans. I, I recommended that some of the folks read that, so at least they'd have that view not that that's the singular and an all-knowing view of uh of at least the the mohegan uh, uh experience but it would give them more than what they know and but they're they're going to hang on some anecdotal story about either a chief owl or you know, and and of course that wouldn't have even been the words that we would have used i had somebody from cambridge ask me so why don't you um why can't we use an animal but we we'll use the native word for that animal i says well, why use the native word and they said we 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 have a lot of eagles here what what she she asked me what's the mohawk word for eagle i said look i'll tell you what the mohawk word for eagle is but when you hear it, you're going to realize that it's probably not appropriate anyway. It, it doesn't roll off your tongue the way it rolls off of ours. I mean, I mean, our word for eagle is one of the words is, is aguax. Well, who's going to want to call themselves the, the Cambridge aguax? Even putting the word Cambridge next to a native name doesn't necessarily flow. And, you know, so whether they want to come up with the, the Mohican word for owl and try to incorporate that, it's, it's just all inappropriate. And why does it have to revolve around indigenous anything? Do you know what I mean? Like, why can't you just refer to yourself as the owls or the eagles and not have any indigenous connotation attached to it at all? What is, what it, why is there this need for the school district to have some indigenous attachment to it? when I can guarantee you're probably not even teaching the indigenous history 
in your school. Well, and, and that's just it. There's there's a fetishizing of native imagery. And of course, right. that connects to to all kinds of native problems, you know, problems that we have, you know, including missing and murdered indigenous women. I spoke of this at the really? board meeting and I said, look, if you're fetishizing native people, you're also fetishizing native women. And and that con that contributes to the problems that we have. And, you know, I had people heckling in the back, like, well, it's got nothing to do with it. I mean, there's literally people out in Cambridge who are suggesting that this whole mascot thing was started by the Me Too movement, that somehow I've been funded by George Soros to go, to go out to Cambridge to, to try to strip them, to, to try to steal their identity from them. It's, it is that absurd. And of course... I can't even comment on that. <laughs> well, and you know... It's just too absurd. This, this conversation about critical race theory, which is you know obviously something that, that's got to concern you a little bit, because... What's happening yeah. is, you know, obviously critical race theory is is an academic analysis of law being impacted by racism. I mean, that's what it is. And and it isn't taught in the high school and it certainly isn't taught in the grade school. There's a few colleges that offered some in-depth study on critical race theory because it's, it's pretty clear that racism is systemic and that the embeddedness of racism, I mean, it, obviously school mascots is a perfect example of it. But now we've heard some of these QAnon folks and these Proud Boy folks are, are really trying to make a push, even at the school board level, to get right-wing folks into school boards that will condemn critical race theory generally. And then what happens is, any analysis of history that might make white people uncomfortable gets labeled as critical. There's like 17 states that, have, that are so far that have passed laws forbidding schools from teaching critical race theory. Now, the problem is, that, well, for one thing, nobody's teaching critical race theory in these schools. But if they start using their broader definition of critical race theory, they can, they'll, they'll fire teachers, tenured or not. They'll fire teachers because they are violating a state law. And this is the direction that we're going in. And so when I hear some of these schools like Cambridge, you know, and so many others that are saying, well, we're, we're going to um, incorporate more native studies in our curriculum, not to solve the, the, the mascot issue, but to prolong the mascot issue. This, this is going to be our justification for keeping it. Now we're going to teach more about it. Well, why didn't you do it for the last 80 years? So how do you reconcile this push by the right against critical race theory and teaching any history that might make white people uncomfortable with this new desire to, to teach native history to justify your mascots. And, and the simple answer is they're going to teach things like corn and canoes and native people enlisting in the armed forces. They'll even play that game where they'll highlight the, which native territories or, or people's fought on the side of the Americans in like the Revolutionary War and never finished mm -hmm. the story because obviously this is part of the, the Stockbridge and the Oneida story. Yes, they yes. fought on the side of the Americans. And how did that work out for you? Well, considering that the seat of government for Mohican Nation is now in Wisconsin. There you go. That's my <laughs> point. <laughs> I mean, I think those who are against, opposed, afraid of critical race theory are afraid of the truth. They're afraid of having to confront something um, about the nation that they love. They look at it as unpatriotic. 
where I look at it as the most patriotic thing you can do is to question and understand that the nation that you live in is flawed and it was flawed from the start. And it's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We are not that city upon a hill as was written by the pilgrims when they first came over. We're not that. This country has made mistakes, founded you know, on genocide, built on the backs of the enslaved. It's not saying white people are wrong or bad. It's just saying that the racism and discrimination that was at the start is so systematic and built into our institutions that it is literally as American as apple pie. In fact, if we bring up race and racism, uh, then that is treated as un-American. And that's what, that's what, we're, what we're confronted with now. Look, as Native people, we, we still stand at a, at a very much at a crossroads in our own identity. When they do teach about Native history, they teach us as a, as a time stamp that ended with, with colonization. I mean, I, when I was a kid, they used to teach us there was Indians, discovery, colonization, revolution. Th those are the first four eras of, of American history. And it's, wait, so we yep. ended when, when a ship showed up here? I mean, and that's exactly the way it's taught. I mean, there's a little bit of interaction, you know, between natives and, and, and that gets mischaracterized. You know, I think one of the biggest problems we have is the fact that so many false narratives are told about, uh, about U.S. Native history or Canadian Native history that, you know, our own people are confused by it. Not, not to mention, obviously, the vast majority of white people. Right. And I think that's where critical race theory is a good thing. Um, it is talking about the truth, talking about what actually happened, talking about what really went down in the Caribbean in 1492 when Columbus landed, what really happened after um, Thanksgiving and the Pequot Wars, what what you know what really happened you know people say it's civil war is a states rights issue yeah it was about the states rights to own people so it's it's really talking about that truth it's not saying you know that you should feel bad for the race you are or you were born or you should feel bad for being a, an american it's not saying any of that but what it is have saying, a privilege you shouldn't have exactly because of the color of your skin Right. You should understand the why you have a step up, you know, why there is why there is that inequality in the United States. It's understanding that history. And it's also understanding that those founders of the United States were all very flawed people. And I think one of the most perfect examples to look at is the four presidents that are on Mount Rushmore, sure. right? George Washington, who was a slave owner who forced out um, my ancestors after they fought in the revolution under him. Thomas Jefferson, who created the Louisiana Purchase, who was also a slave owner, which opens the door to the 1830 removal. Uh, Lincoln, again, who signs the death warrant for the 38 Dakota after the Dakota uprising. And then 
Teddy Roosevelt, who says the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So it's understanding the flaws and learning from them. But the reason for knowing this stuff is is not just so we can we can you know say okay you owe us something now, but you need to understand that the circumstances that we find ourselves in, and I say the same thing you know with with any oppressed people, black people for instance, you can't sit there and judge black people for the lives that they that they've been trying to carve out in not only a post slavery. America, but a post um, uh, race, you know, I mean, look, the whole, you know, the, the whole era of, of, of racism and lynchings and I mean, well after the Civil War, I mean, look, Tulsa took the Tulsa riot took place in, you know, in, in, in the after the turn of the century. So how do we how do we reconcile any of this stuff if we can't even acknowledge that yes, there there are people that that have been you know treated very very badly, and you know when we talk about things like the residential schools, we also have to you know tie that to the foster care system and the and the you know the child protective services and so much that does has continued to to rip children away from uh, out of native homes in spite of the Indian Child Welfare Act. We we know look when when Maine did their Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was over foster care. It wasn't over residential schools. It was over Native kids that were being abused in the foster care system. Yeah. How do we reconcile that? We can't even have conversations about it. We, You can't have a really amazing project like the 1619 Project come out without someone on the right having to real, re, retaliate with the 1776 Project. Like, that's a load of crap in my opinion and to lash out against these initiatives that are about truth telling is it's very it's very scary well and and again one of the things that i have to remind people is not just that thomas jefferson referred to the native people as merciless indian savages in that document from 1776 but that one of the main reasons for the fight for independence from uh, Great Britain was the fact that the colonists wanted to grab more native land. And King George was saying, no, you need to put the brakes on that. We're going to try to, we're going to try to, you know, subjugate native people by bringing them into our society. That's what King George said. No, look, I'm not giving them a pass because look, we were double dealt with by uh, on every turn, but the colonists were, were pissed that they couldn't just advance into native territories and, you know, their whole argument about taxation without representation, the myth is that Great Britain was grabbing all of this tax revenue to, um, you know, to bolster their coffers in, uh, you know, in England. But the reality is most of the taxation that was happening among the col- amongst the colonies was to pay for frontier security. And the uh, this military, this British military, wasn't so much fighting off native advancements, but it was fighting off colonial advancements into um, into native territories. And and again, that's not talked about. But if you read carefully the language in the Declaration of Independence, you realize how much of it was associated with the colonists wanting to advance their what they called the frontier, which is essentially a euphemism for wanting to to seal more native lands. Right, and not to mention when you also hear those words 
all men are created equal, you have to really think about who were they actually talking about because it wasn't you and it wasn't me. It was what it wasn't it was what it wasn't 90% of the colonists yeah. was those it was the aristocracy. Exactly. You know, and when I talk about the the language in the Declaration of Independence, if that stood alone, that'd be one thing. But then when you realize what those founding fathers actually did. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, you're right. He paved the way for the Removal Act. That's what the whole justification was for the Louisiana Purchase. George mm -hmm. Washington in the Sullivan campaign basically called for terrorism against the Senecas and, uh, and, and allies. They, he, he said, let them know the terror of their chastisement. He talked about this notion of intergenerational trauma that, that they could uh, inflict upon Native people so they would never rise up again. So this is the, the level of ruthlessness that, um, that these glorified founding fathers are, are really responsible for. Yeah, we could talk about people being flawed, and I'm not suggesting that everybody should always be judged by the worst thing they did in their life. But you can't you can, you can't check that off the uh, the list. I mean, you can't just knock that off and say, "Yeah, sure, Thomas Jefferson was having sex with his slaves, um, having children with his slaves, who then became slaves." But other than that, he was a good guy. I mean, we we how do you have that conversation? Right. And it's it's funny, you know, bringing up the concept of Jefferson. When I was in college, I actually wrote my dissertation on him because I have a very weird and problematic obsession with him. And I don't know why I can't put my finger on it. But, it, you know, when people do talk about his relationship with Sally Hemings and they talk about it being you know, it could have possibly been a love relationship or a consensual relationship. And I'm like, it, it wasn't consensual. If you're a slave, and the reason you do is consensual. Exactly. There was a power dynamic there that is unfair in her favor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it is unfair towards her. Yeah. And nobody talks about her or her feelings or how she might have felt in that situation. It always comes off on Jefferson's side because history is written by the victors. Well, the interesting thing is that there's been a recent um, study into uh, Jefferson as a business person. And uh, this analysis in his slaveholding was that he was meticulous in his record keeping. He knew exactly how much he needed to feed his slaves bef uh, or how little he could feed them before the work would drop off. I mean, his, his accounting practices what made him among the most efficient and well-documented slaveholders in, uh, in, in all the colonies. And so when you look at that, you know, and, and when you, you find the areas of well-kept buildings that he had for chaining up his slaves, including the, the little kid handcuffs that they found in, in some, of his, uh, uh, some of his places, it is, it is really, you know, there, there's no way that you can spin that to make it go away and, and say, but he was, he, other than that, he was, he was completely moral and ethical. I mean. Exactly. If one doesn't fit the other, there is definite wrongs that were happening that need to be understood. The idea of a good slave master does not exist.
as a Mohawk, knowing that the town that I went to school in, which was a part of some of my ancestral homelands, that I'm essentially not welcome there just because of the mascot issue, that knowing that somebody like yourself, who is, is you know, again, part Mohican um, and works for the Mohican Nation, um, would not be welcome in a place like that by the people, not by the land. I mean, the land is beautiful. I mean, it is really incredible. But then you then you rapidly get confronted and, and get slapped in the face by, um, by some of the very people who, on one hand, are claiming that they're honoring Native people with their high school mascot, but at the same time, absolutely despising um, who we are because, you know, because we you know, we conflict with, with what they want to do. Look, Cambridge did, uh, during, um, some of this battle over the, this mascot, the school board hired a company to come in and do, um, healing circles. Now the first bunch of them were done via zoom and, and it was supposed to be, everybody could tell how they, you know, speak to, to the harm that they felt not by the mascots, but by the mascot debate, which seemed to me inappropriate, but, at some point, when this thing came to the end of of their this this company's work there, they decided that COVID had waned enough that they could do some in person healing circles, and they turned into absolute debacles because that's when the the pro mascot people really came out to participate, and they didn't come out to participate in healing; they came out to participate in in threats and violence and bullying. And not only did they did they really beat up on one of the school board members in particular, but one of the the moderators from this company that was doing it was it was Oneida from from Wisconsin, and he was working for this company, and he was verbally assaulted by these. So I mean, just the idea that being a native person in that environment right now today is, you know, in spite of how we feel about the place. The people have really turned it into something um, not very welcoming. Right. And as somebody who lives in a border town, I can definitely relate to uh, that negativity, negativity and and just nastiness that can be directed towards you. Well, and, and the reality is up until recently, 90 percent of um, these schools that had native mascots were all using the standard Hollywood full headdress Plains Indian um, logo for for who they were. Um, you know, back 20 years ago, there became you know a little more sensitivity about using imagery that was perhaps a little bit more accurate to the to the region. But that doesn't you know I, you know I've got good friends down in Pennsylvania. Um, one of my my dear friends um, is fighting a school called Nishamani. Um, and they made a lot of news over the years because, um, their, their school newspaper refused, to, they called themselves the Redskins. And, and of course that's one of the, the worst possible names. So they're the Neshaminy Redskins and the, their school newspaper refused to print the word and it turned into a bit of a national story. In fact, the Native American Journalists Association, NAJA, actually, um, gave special uh, recognition to this uh, this newspaper it's called the play wiki and um that was standing up against racism and that that school is fighting it all the way they're digging in just like cambridge is 
and and they have the pl- full plains indian headdress they aren't they aren't acknowledging the the lenape or any of the, the the native people who really would have been indigenous to that area they just grab whatever image they want and they claim it for themselves and you mentioned this earlier when you talked about the the heritage claim because it's like they take this and they take it and they make it theirs and they will actually fight us over it and say, well, you're not who we're talking about. I mean, I, I literally had this this one group that they call Naga, where they were trying to suggest that when they are honoring Native people with these images, they aren't talking about us. They're talking about a people who don't exist anymore. You know, so it's almost like they're they're like, not only do they lock in with this timestamp, an image of Native people who no longer exist, but they're actually saying that's who they are representing. They aren't representing us. And, and, and of course, that's, that's just flat out willful ignorance. It's not just ignorance. It's willful ignorance. Yeah. Like, how do you even, how, like, I, I can't even formulate an intelligent response to that because there is an already a huge issue with erasure. I, you know, prior to the pandemic, the last in-person lecture I gave was either in January or February of 2020. So just last year before COVID-19 really, you know, shut the world down. And I had someone come up to me after that lecture and full honesty, full honesty on their part, tell me that they didn't know that Indigenous people still existed. There is a a prevailing belief among Americans and you know and even on the Canadian side as well that that we don't exist or what we do exist as is um this one of the reasons I have a problem with the word indigenous it's 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 actual definition is one thing but the way it is used in in international um realms I guess is that an indigenous person is considered a person who is a descendant of the the people who lived uh, in a place before colonization that were not actually those people that we are merely the descendants. I have a problem with that. Look, I'll acknowledge that I have ancestors and I'm a descendant of those ancestors, but I am those same people. I'm a, I'm a descendant of those individuals, but I am those same people. You know, one of the things that I also bring up often when I'm when I'm talking about the mascot issue is, um, are you familiar with Al Frank Baum and some of his writings? Yes. L. Frank Baum wrote The Wonderful Wizard of yeah. Oz. But he was also the newspaper editor of The Pioneer yes. in Aberdeen, Dakota Territory. And he wrote two editorials that are that are known as the genocide editorials, where he calls for our extermination. And he says, why not extermination? Their glory is, has fled. Their manhood has been effaced. Better they die the, than live the miserable wretches that they are. And then he goes on to say that we would be remembered in later days as the grand kings of the forest and the plain. And... He actually lays the foundation to to view Native people with almost this backhanded kind of compliment in a way that, yes, um, they were this noble, you know, um, be, these noble beings, these grand kings of the forest and plain, but they aren't anymore. And it's better that we die off than destroy the legacy that Americans are going to want to keep of Native people and that they will... They will later praise those people. In fact, not only will they praise it, they'll call their their school mascot 
the, by those names. So when I when I read Al Frank Baum, and if you haven't read it recently, take another look at it because when you read it, you realize this is the mentality that goes with not only erasure by omission, but by intentionally erasing a people so you can recreate that image for yourself to bolster your own ego. And, 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 and essentially that's what the mascot issue is. Yeah, we're still here. We haven't gone anywhere. We still have beautiful, thriving communities with rich histories and it's with pasts that are older than than colonization colonization older itself America, john trudell <laughs> yeah john trudell once said that we aren't just the native americans we are the human beings because we are older than yeah. you know we have a history that is longer than I just really, and I, I try really hard to like put myself, try, to try to understand the other side when it comes to this mascot issue or things like that. And I just can't because I don't get it. Especially when you know all of the facts, when you read the studies, when you hear what the communities have to say and you just turn a blind eye, I cannot understand that. Well, and of course, the one challenge that we that we always face, and this is one of what I've one of the challenges that I faced in Cambridge, is invariably they're going to find some person who either claims to be native or has some native ancestry that is in full on favor of these mascots. And why? Because they are made to feel special in a community of white people because they represent the permission. So not only do you get an organization like Naga that claims to be guardians of native um, culture uh, advocating any mascot. It doesn't matter what derogatory uh, name is used, redskin, savage, it doesn't matter. They, they will fight for any school to maintain this stuff. And then they, they create this, this stupid phrase, you know, educate, not eradicate. And, you know, when we're calling for the removal of mascots, we're not talking about eradicating anything. We're saying stop the erasure that the mascots represent. But when we get confronted with, with people who have sometimes legitimate Native ancestry but are so removed from their own nations, from their own people, from their own community. Why? Because they've chosen a different path. Look, we all make tough choices in our lives, and we don't all find um, that path that, that really solidifies our identity. And I don't begrudge somebody who says, okay, I'm going to make a life for myself. I'm no longer going to be connected to my culture. Look, that's a choice. And, and I understand that. Be, being Native isn't easy. I mean, for all of the great things you can say about our territories, we also know we're still plagued with so many of the, uh, of, you know, of the damage from the past as well. So, when I hear somebody that says, no, I'm, I'm going to live amongst white people and, and I'm going to be I'm going to live white passing and all that other stuff. I get it. And I'm and I that I don't I don't have as much a problem with that as I do when that same individual or individuals who have chosen that life now stand up and say, well, I can speak for all native people and mascots are fine. Right. Yeah. You can't. I feel like as native people, we already are straddling two different worlds. You know, like we're, we're trying to stay true to who we are as Native people while also trying to survive in a very colonized world. Very capitalist so it's like society, we're, yep. 
It, absolutely. So we are already straddling both sides of the fence and trying to do right by our ancestors and by our families. And so when you have those people for whatever reason, and I, I'm never one to question somebody's ancestry or their family history, you, but you can't come in and say that you speak for all of us. I mean, as a historian and a lecturer, if I'm getting up and I'm lecturing on the Dakota uprising, I make it a point to say, I do not speak for the Dakota people. I'm just here to tell you the history of something. If you want to know Dakota feelings, you need to talk to a Dakota person. Well, and like, that, and that's why me. we solicited the the view and the opinion and the resolutions out of the Stockbridge Muncie uh, Mohican Nation and and, mm -hmm. and and Mohawks and the Haudenosaunee. That's why we did that because I didn't want to go there and say my voice is more important than than your local Native family's voice. I'm saying that my voice is shared by all of these, and and that is the, is the difference. And and I agree with you. If somebody tells me that their grand grandmother was a Cherokee princess, I don't immediately confront that. But I but I also <laughs> have to take it with a with a grain of salt. And exactly, and, and where exactly. I come back to anytime somebody tells me that they're that they're part native and, and get into the blood quantum thing or whatever i say but who's your family you know are, are what, yeah. what, what community are you a part of and and that's not an interrogation that's the way i'm going to get to know this person and if you right. don't have any of that then i say oh okay so you're just have native ancestry you don't really have a cultural connection and when you right. ask somebody that that's when they start to struggle a little bit especially if they were trying to use their ancestry as some sort of entitlement to speak in an area that they don't really know much about. Right. And it gets harder when you, when you are a nation that's been removed from your homelands and like so far removed that you are now a thousand miles away and you've got people in your homelands speaking on things that they have nothing to do with. And that, you know, that is a whole other conversation, but it's, you know, it's, it's definitely hard, especially when you're trying to, you know, speak on behalf of your nation because you have the backing of your nation and you've got people out there who think that they know their history better than you. And it can get, it gets into some sticky situations. Well, and you mentioned about that balance of the two worlds. You're, you're Oneida, and so the uh, Goswanta, or the um, uh, Ohade, which is also called the Tura Wampum, is something that, that you're a part of. Yeah. And the Tura Wampum uh, is visualized by a wampum belt that is basically a white wampum belt with two um, uh, rows of, of purple wampum. And the whole idea is that it represents two distinct peoples, not, not just white people and native people. I mean, in fact, I'm, I'm sure at some point between the, the Mohicans and the, and, the, and the Mohawks, they, we had shared this concept of the Turo, which we are distinct people. We, are, uh, we, we both have paths across our mother here, and we need to mutually respect each other. And when white people came... They didn't have a path here. So we changed the analogy a little bit. And so we talked about the ship and the canoe. So we talked about being on the same river of life, but in very distinct vessels. And 
while we're going to share some of the same experiences because we're going, we're passing on that same river, we won't try to steer each other's canoe and we won't try to straddle each other's uh, vessel in the water. Um, I think the life that we lead today is challenging because the river is what's changed in many ways because we are all confronted with different ways of sustaining ourselves and, uh, mm-hmm. and teaching each other. And, and, you know, the language isn't something that we went into their vessel to grab. It was, it was kind of imposed. They violated Turo. And so now we're figuring out how do we maintain ourselves in our own vessel along that river of life without totally jumping into theirs or totally being overrun by theirs. And that's, that's the life that we, so when you talk about that balance, part of that balance is, is understanding, yes, we are a distinct people and we need to know when, where, and how we can assert that distinction because it's, you know, we can't take on every battle. We have to sometimes choose our battles wisely. You know, the one thing I will say about the mascot issue, it does matter because we are changing what generations of of white children are going to be learning in their schools, and and it, and it could it, it could impact our future, as, as you know, as we do away with some of that that bias that has been taught in this systemic racist system. Yeah, absolutely, and this is it, it's a battle that is both easy and difficult at the same time. Easy because when you can change that mind. It, it happens really fast and it happens in good faith. Difficult because as in the issue of Cambridge, you hit a brick wall. And it's you know one that I think if we keep working on and keep bringing awareness to, one where we could hopefully soon eradicate the use of you know, native imagery as mascots and as, and instead of, you know, using mascots as a way to quote honor, you know, native history and heritage, maybe we actually have that taught in schools instead. And, you know, the idea of telling the truth in our history is not such a foreign concept. Well, and and I, I have all the confidence in the world that, that we will, move most of these schools, if not all of these schools, in a relatively short time frame. If you look at the number of schools that have dropped their native mascots, there are more that dropped them in the last two years than, than have in the last 10 years. So look, we, we're winning this battle. And, and I think that even when we run into these brick walls in places like Neshaminy High School or in, uh, in Cambridge, uh, Neshaminy, Pennsylvania or Cambridge, New York, as much as I was never a big fan of state mandates against this, I've come to re- the realization that there are such deeply ingrained pockets of racism across the United States and Canada that if there aren't some sort of mandates that, that, that are imposed from outside of a community, then there are some, some communities that will, never, that will never come to their senses and do the right thing. So it probably will be imposed on them at some point. I think five or six states already have uh, passed uh, laws prohibiting native mascots. And I know New York has one on the, on the books. I don't know what, what's the, has the state of Wisconsin addressed this at the, at the state level yet? Uh, no. Okay. Well, and I know <laughs> no, hopefully soon. <laughs> I know I've been dealing with a few schools out in that area, but mostly in uh, Michigan and um, I think Illinois, I've got uh, 
I think Mahuka is a, um, Mahuka High School or Manuka High School. I mean, is uh, is one of those um, schools that's really fighting it, and that they're in the the Midwest there. So yeah, I would I would hope that with Wisconsin being home to eleven federally recognized tribes would would you know back the nations and hopefully get something on the books soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and in a, in a perfect world people would realize the wrong of it and would do the right thing. But unfortunately, that is true. <laughs> that, it doesn't always happen that way. Heather, let me um, shift gears a little bit. Look, I'm uh, I'm actually speaking to you. I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. So I live out near, out near Buffalo, I guess is the best way to describe it. But I am Mohawk. I'm Gunyagahaga. My family is from, from Gunnawage. My wife is Oneida. Um, and we lived in Oneida territory for a while on the, th- on the 32 acres near Stockbridge in Oneida. That's why I know the area. But I'm not living in my quote unquote ancestral lands today. I mean, my father was a high steel worker. So we, yeah, we lived in, in that Albany area. He worked in New York. And then, and, and that's how I ended up in Cambridge because Cambridge was a rural area closer enough to, to Albany that my father could, could work in, um, in Albany and if not come home every day, certainly come home every weekend and that kind of thing. So, um, that, you know, so that's how my life was. When I think about folks like, like the Oneidas who live in Wisconsin, for instance, who have been so far removed from their ancestral homelands, um, it, you know, I come back to you and, and I wonder as, as a person within uh, who, who works within the uh, um, the Stockbridge Muncie Mohegan Nation, talk to me a little bit about living a life that is so far removed from your ancestral homelands. And I know you said you guys do maintain an office in Stockbridge, Mass. I mean, how do you relate to your your ancestral homeland when you you have to do almost a land acknowledgement to where you're living now that it's not your essentially your your own ancestral lands. Yeah, so um, what an interesting time to to bring up this question uh, because prior to two weeks ago, um, I would have told you I don't I don't know what it's like. Um, I, you know, I grew up outside of Detroit, and you know, only in the past two years moved here to Wisconsin to work with the community. And so even growing up, because my mom did grow up on the Stockbridge Muncie Res here in Wisconsin. You know, growing up, we when we come on family vacation, we would come to Wisconsin. We would go to the Res. When we would go to powwow, we would go to the Stockbridge Muncie powwow. I think prior to being an adult, I'd only been to the Oneida powwow like once, and now I've gone, you know, several times. So prior, you know, to two weeks ago, I wouldn't, I, I didn't know any different. Two weeks ago, I had the advantage of making my very first trip to the homeland. Yeah, it was it was quite powerful. I was in the Berkshires for a week, so I was traveling between Williamstown and Great Barrington for a week, and then the uh, second week I was technically on vacation, but I was uh, up near uh, Hudson, New York. So um, you know, it was uh, I to the best way to describe it is to tell you that I had never felt more of a sense of peace or more of a sense of being at home until I was there. And knowing, being surrounded by that, being surrounded by the Mahikanatuk, which is our name for the Hudson River, um, 
being surrounded by that, being surrounded by the Berkshire Mountains and walking where my ancestors had walked and remembering all those historical memories and what they went through so that I was able to do what I'm able to do today. It was very humbling and it created more of a, of a desire, of a fire to protect those areas, to be a part of those areas, to create more of a presence in those areas, to, for a, a lack of a more eloquent phrase, to make sure our history throws up all over that area so that people know when you are in the land of the Mohicans and, and to understand what our ancestors went through. And so doing that work here in Wisconsin definitely has its challenges, um, but being out in the homelands, seeing, you know, what my ancestors saw, feeling what they feel. I know people say, uh, you know, the land can speak to you. And I have only ever experienced that one other time in my life until I was standing on the shores of the Mahikanatak and I could hear my ancestors and, and, and feel them and know that I was surrounded by them and also getting confirmation that what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing. And so it was a really powerful experience and more than anything, I can't wait to go back out again. It's like two weeks wasn't enough. It was, it was definitely a sense of being at home when I was out there. And I will say there was one interesting part of my trip when um, we got to where we were staying in New York and we got off of the freeway and made a left turn and there was a diner that had a big native mascot, full headdress, so not even the correct, yeah. yeah, not the correct any stuff. And I was just like, wow, like I couldn't, it was, it was very interesting. <laughs> I want to thank Heather Briegel for joining me on this episode of Let's Talk Native. And I look forward to teaming up again for this show and as we each address Native issues going forward. Thank you for checking out the show. As always, if you like what you hear, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can follow the show on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV. You can also join our Facebook group page. I am John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. We are the tribe that they cannot see. We live on an industrial reservation. We are the Halusa Nation. We have been called the Indians. We have been called Native Americans. We have been called hostile. We have been called pagan. We have been called militant. We have been called many names. We are the Halusa Nation. We are the human beings. The callers of names cannot see us, but we can see them. We are the Halusa Nation.
Our DNA is of earth and sky. Our DNA is of past and future. We are the hallucination. We are the evolution. The continuation. The Halusa Nation, the human beings, the people, see the spiritual in the natural, through sense and feeling. Everything is related, all the things of earth and in the sky have spirit. Everything is sacred. Confronted by the alien nation, the subjects and the citizens see the material religions through trauma and numb. Nothing is related. All the things of the earth and in the sky have energy to be exploited. Even themselves mining their spirits into souls sold, into nothing is sacred, not even their self. The Alai Nation, Alia Nation. <laughs> 